Welcome to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. Join attorneys James Moore, Kevin Littlejohn, and Misty Blagg as they explore law, technology, and persuasive arguments. Sit back, relax, and listen to your zealous advocates. Welcome back to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. We're so happy to have you. I'm here with my co-hosts, Kevin Littlejohn and Tom Harvey, and we have a wonderful guest today, Professor Tony Giotto. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. We were lucky enough to meet Professor Giotto while we were attending Campbell Law School, and I'm just fascinated with your background. You served a number of years with, with JAG, and then you went on to, you even served in Iraq, an operation enduring freedom. Afghanistan, and, not Iraq. Oh, okay, Afghanistan. My apologies. Uh, and then you went on to become a law school professor. So tell us a little bit about that transition from a military law um, and then teaching the other side of it. Uh, sure. Um, it, it's not a traditional change. Um, I, I think there's more and more former military lawyers doing it. I think, in fact, I think Campbell has hired two of them um, in the last couple of years. Um, so it's not traditional. So for me, I spent 12 years active duty um, with the Air Force, um, planned on making it a career. Um, usually 20 years is, is the career in military law because that's when you get your full retirement. Um but we were living in Italy and they moved us to Texas and we weren't super happy about it. So I started a job search. Um, and it was one of those things where I applied to be a professor on a whim, not really expecting anything to come of it. Um, the way there's a lot of different ways to get into legal academia and I can kind of walk you through those. Um, one of the primary ways though, is you actually apply through a database, it's the American Association of Law Schools, AALS. Um, you basically pay $500 and you submit your resume. Um, it seems like a scam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a lot like applying to law school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I probably told this story to you in class a long time ago, but, um, you know, my last three assignments, I was the head lawyer for the whole military installation. And, um, you know, and, and that you're kind of dual head in that position. You're in charge of a legal office. You oversee all the lawyers and paralegals but you're also kind of the personal lawyer for the head commander on the base, which in the Air Force is the wing commander. My wing commander and I did not see eye to eye on a lot of things. And, and we got into a loud disagreement one day on a sexual assault case. Um, it was very frustrating. And I went back to my office. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I'm like, well, what would I, what would my dream life be? I'm like, I want to be a law professor, which is, you know, I don't know where that possibly <laughs> Google, how do you become a law professor? Um, I got the AALS website and it was the, that day was the deadline to apply. Um, so I paid $500. I submitted my resume and I heard nothing from anybody. And, and <laughs> usually what happens is like, all, there'll be like a big convention in Washington, DC, all the law schools will be there. And basically it's called like the meat market and you will get lined up to do these interviews with like a bunch of different law schools. Nobody contacted me. So I'm like, well, that was a waste of $500. <laughs> Um, and then one day I checked my Gmail account and I have an email from a professor named Mike Kent at Campbell Law. And um, he was like, I'm the chair of the hiring committee and we saw your resume and we'd like to interview you. Um, and I'm just like, I had to Google where Campbell was. And what Campbell <laughs> was. Um, and I'm just like, well, Raleigh doesn't seem that bad. So um, I, I submitted a cover letter and didn't really think anything much of it. Um, I talked to a couple um, law professors I had when I was at Emory. 
And both, both, most of them were like, don't get your hopes up. I'm usually, you know, for every 10 interviews you have, you may get one offer. Um, and I'm like, well, I got one interview. And they're like, well, don't count on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I got through the hiring process. And then, um, you know, I, I went to Campbell and um, spent five very eventful years there. Well, what does it feel like to go back home? And first of all, I got to ask, do you pronounce it Illinois or Illinois? This is a dumb it's Southern Illinois. question. It's Illinois. <laughs> Illinois. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. So for me, this is coming home. So I'm born and raised in the Chicago suburbs. Um, went to the University of Illinois for undergrad um, and then left um, the state to go to law school at Emory in Atlanta. So um, we have this thing here called double Illini. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not a double Illini, and I'm reminded of it quite a bit. <laughs> um, but I am a single Illini. And uh, um, yeah, so last year, um, right about this time, um, I made the move from Campbell to join the faculty here at Illinois. And uh, it's it's weird. I, I, I've been telling folks, and like, it's it's a little bit trippy to go back to your alma mater 20 years later as a professor. Um, and you know, you, every day when I drive to work, I, I walk past my freshman year dorm. Um, and remember all your escapades (laughs) to to all the kids. They don't know, they don't know what it was really like to be here. (laughs) I I remember, you know, having to make bathroom trips at the law school. Um, So it's weird. It's weird. Um, you know, after a year of being here, I feel a little bit more settled in, but, um, it is, it does fit a little bit differently teaching at your alma mater. Mm. Absolutely. Now, Kevin has talked about how much, you know, being on trial team helped prepare him for the practice of the law. And you are you are now serving in the role as director of advocacy at uh, Illinois Law School. So tell me how you go about like what's your mindset in developing young advocates? It's hard. It's hard. Um, You know, um, obviously, you guys are all products of Campbell. I, I think you guys all saw firsthand and especially Kevin. Um, the the merits of a good advocacy program. Um, and it's something, you know, obviously I think Campbell does really, really well at. Um, so I did, I directed the advocacy program at Campbell for a year. Um, and, and really, to be fair, at, at that point, it was just such a successful program with good people and, and kind of an established culture that, that I really, I just try not to screw things up too much. <laughs> uh, and, and I probably failed at that. Um, so this position in Illinois was a little bit different. Um, so, you know, the University of Illinois is, is a wonderful law school. Um, it's a different type of law school than Campbell. Um, you know, every, every law school is a little bit different. Um, they have different missions, different cultures, different students. Um, so, you know, different focus, different priorities. So it's, it's a different law school from Campbell. And it has a fairly rich tradition of trial team. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of very successful trial advocates coming out of Illinois. Um, but, you know, my impression is it hasn't necessarily been a, a priority and um, there's not necessarily a culture of advocacy. And I, I was not the one who noticed that. Um, I think other people noticed that. Um, so well before I got here, um, the University of Illinois College of Law made a choice to to get into advocacy and to prioritize advocacy. Uh, and thankfully, um, we have two alums, um, Kimball and Karen Anderson, um, who are double alumni, who are both incredibly successful attorneys in Chicago. Um, and they made a $5 million donation to the law school nice. about a year and a half ago to basically create the Anderson Center for Advocacy and Professionalism. 
so that's what I got hired into. So I'm the inaugural director of the Anderson Center for Advocacy and Professionalism. So our mission, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm dual-hatted, I'm also the director of trial advocacy. Um, so it's a little bit different from Campbell in that in some ways, I don't want to say we're starting from scratch, but but we don't really have a clear advocacy culture. Um, and, and we have different financial resources, and we also have geography that's different. Um, and, and a little bit of a different mission. Um, so especially to, you know, in the last few years, Campbell has somewhat separated trial team from the trial advocacy curriculum and all that stuff where we're all together as one. So for me, as I kind of approached this position, it was almost a, a clean slate, blank check um, to do what I thought was important. And, and so some of it is taking what we did at Campbell really well, and that's individualized coaching that is, you know, teaching you the fundamentals through the coursework and then instilling them on the trial team. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to incorporate a lot of lessons of professionalism um, because that's our, our mission, you know, we're the Center for Advocacy and Professionalism. But really it is this idea that, that you take somebody, and I like to say that they have an interest in advocacy, right? It doesn't even have to be a skill set for advocacy. And you put them through the program, whatever that program is, right? And every program is a little bit different. And by the time they come out of that program, they should be an ethical attorney who has found their own unique and particular voice as an advocate. Um, so one thing I'm, I'm trying to avoid is a one-size-fit-all approach to advocacy. Um, I will never be Kevin Littlejohn, and, and I cannot keep teaching. I can't Kevin either. Littlejohn. Trust me, no, nobody. Kevin is the first oh, one to tell you nobody will be Kevin that's Littlejohn. That's not true. <laughs> but, but I can't teach Kevin to be me either, right? Right. Um, so what, what I try to do here is, is very individualized teaching. Um, you know, as, you know, we roll into our fall trial advocacy course, when I'm telling the students what's in the syllabus, right, um, we have two goals. One is to teach you or to give you the confidence to be a courtroom lawyer. Because um, for many of us, and I always include myself in this too, right, in my own personal narrative, um, a lot of people can't see themselves as courtroom lawyers um, for whatever reason. Um, you know, me, I grew up with a speech impediment and, and was incredibly shy, and I never thought the courtroom would be a place for me, right? So there is that, I'm here to teach you the confidence that you can do it. Um, and then the next step is once you have that confidence, I'm going to teach you the fundamentals, right, the, the right way to do it. And then the third thing is to help you find your own voice, to help you find what works for you, what doesn't work for you, um, so that you can be the best version of yourself and, and to be the best advocate for your client. Well, if so I can jump. I try doing the course, trial team, you know, we do a lot of symposium here, which is a little bit different. So okay. like every semester we do a symposium. Um, through all of that, it, it's kind of those three are my, my guiding principles. You go so, ahead. So I, my question that I have about that, uh, Professor, is, you know, you talked about your time as the head of the office uh, for JAG in the Air Force. I assume that through that time, I mean, you came up as started as a captain, promoted up to major, and now you're lieutenant colonel. During that time, you obviously mentored young captains coming up in the JAG program. How is developing young lawyers in a practical setting relate to or different than your focus as a professor teaching advocacy in, in that realm? That's a great question. Um, I was much meaner when I was in practice. <laughs> uh, and if anything, I, I worry sometimes I've become too nice and, and too lean as a professor. No. Uh, you know, I, you know, and, and 
I actually just came off of doing my two week annual tour out in Goldsboro. I mean, we had a trial going on with young lawyers. So I kind of had to put back on that hat. Um, a, a big role of a senior JAG, whether he's a major or she's a major lieutenant colonel, colonel is to mentor um, young lawyers. Um, you know, I always say the, the first trial I ever did for real was a forcible sodomy case. Um, you know, two weeks out of Jack school. Um, I had, I had no, I had no idea what I was doing. And Emory has a good trial advocacy program. Like I had done mock trials. Um, but I walked into that courtroom and I'm like, I was clueless. Um, in the military, right. What, what you tend to find is you have, you literally have a captive audience, um, you know, cause if they don't do what you tell them to do, they can be disciplined for it. Um, so I found that you can be a little bit more directive, um, also, too, there wasn't a lot of time, right? So they all had day jobs. I had day jobs. It was much more, this is what you have to do, and, and you go do it um, or else. Um, you didn't have a lot of time to, to sit in the courtroom all day and, and go over a direct, right? And, and it was hard to expect a young trial counsel to have something completely memorized. Right. Um, I was a, a legal advisor for a discharge board a couple of weeks ago. For the Air Force, and that, that's where basically it's in the administrative proceeding, but it's in court, and, and you're thinking somebody should be kicked out. And, and I was kind of hard on, on the government counsel who gave the opening statement because the opening statement wasn't memorized. And I'm like, well, I teach the opening statement should always be memorized. And he's like, well, I've got 900 other things to do. Right. Um, so, you know, you're, you, in practice, you had to be more realistic and you had to just be a little bit more, more task oriented. Um, in academia and with teaching, right, um, it, it, you don't have that, that captive audience because they could just be like, no, like, I, I, I don't want to do this. Um, you know, I, I, you know what? In, in trial advocacy, it's not a required class here. It's an elective. Oh. Now, somehow I have 120 students registered for fall trial advocacy, which <laughs> I, I, I take credit for or blame for. I don't know. But um, they could just drop the class, right? Um, for trial team, they could just quit trial team. Um, you know, that's something that, you know, I don't know if students pick up sometimes, but from a trial ad program, we need them just as much as they need us. Um, you know, if our top advocates don't compete, then we don't win. And if you don't win, you don't have a U.S. News and World Report ranking. And if right. you don't have a U.S. News and World mm -hmm. Report ranking, you can't recruit and you can't fundraise off of that. Right. Um, so so you don't you you need to find a way to do it where they feel like they're getting something out of it and they feel supported. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, you know, not to be like the old guy in the room, but but things are different. Things are different. And, you know, when I was a, a brand new prosecutor in 2006, you know, I had a boss who would scream at me. He once threw a chair at me. I think I, I had one of those, too. Um, it was it was horrific, and I just took it, and I'm like, well, I'm going to get better, right? Because I don't want to get yelled at. Right. Uh, you can't. I don't think you can do that anymore. I think I think our society has progressed and has moved on, um, especially in the law school setting, and, and um, it's not necessarily the way I want to be either. Um, you know, and, and I've even seen it. You know, I'm, it's hard to believe I'm going in my seventh year of, of legal teaching. You know, in my first year at Campbell, it was the norm to kick students out of your classroom, right? It was the norm to berate students if they didn't read. Um, and I, I don't think I necessarily participated in that, but I was awfully close sometimes. 
Um, I would never do that now. I, I, I can think of that. one or two classmates you probably should have done it with, but that's a, we'll take that one off air. Well, you know, well, and there is, I would, I would handle things behind the scenes, right? Yeah. Um, which I think is the right way. Public humiliation is, is to me just not effective. Well, I just um, don't think you're getting out what you, what you need to. I think b- teaching is much like coaching. You have to tap into what's going to be effective. And I know for women, I've seen this a lot of times, it's just not effective to break them down. Some men will respond to that. Kevin has acknowledged like he he needs somebody to give him that tough love sometimes. Mm. But I just don't think it's very effective for women. Well, and, and I tell my students that, too. It's just like, look, um, you know, if and, and I would do this at Campbell, too, right? Because, you know, especially, too, sometimes for class, um, you know, Professor Belitho and I, for example, taught the same classes. And I would often get the question. It's like, what well, should I take you or, or Belitho? And I'm like, well, you're going to learn the material, whoever right. you take. Mm-hmm. But the approaches are going to be very different, right? And and the the it wasn't saying one approach was better than the other approach. We're getting you to the same place. Um, it's just we had diff- very different teaching styles, and and that doesn't mean one's better or not. Um, you know, and so here I've been coaching trial teams a lot more than I did at Campbell. And actually, I had one student, so was a female student, if I said, you know, can I get a different coach um, because you're too nice? <laughs> well, Somebody there you go. Who, who will push me and will will kind of be more you know aggressive and. I'm like, all right, great. Um, that ain't me, right? Um, so I, I do think that that's the big difference is, is I just think you need to, you know, you need to check your ego a little bit. And, and when people don't listen, it's not because of you. Um, but you just need to, you need to get them on their path. And sometimes the way to get them on their path, you have to be more of a counselor and more of a support system right. than a boss. Well, Professor Gatta, I was one of those students like you that was very, um, I, I guess, shy. I don't know, got nervous over public speaking and, and somewhere along the way, and I was older in law school, somewhere along the way, I, I was able to get over that. So how, what are some techniques that you teach and, and how do you help students sort of overcome that extreme nervousness they get in the courtroom? Yeah. Um, one, I think it's just, it, to me, it is being, making myself honest and vulnerable. Um, I think something that I struggled with throughout my legal career is like, how much of, of yourself do you share, right? Um, mm-hmm. How much is you? How much is is the students in the law school community? And I think sometimes I had a hard time finding that balance. But I think now after doing this for a long time, um, I think you have to share your own vulnerabilities when it comes to stuff like that, right? So, um, you know, sharing my experiences, struggling and, and not wanting to do things, I think kind of creates an environment of like, okay, well, you know, cause I think I'm pretty good at what I do now. Um, you know, I'm pretty decent at it. And so it's this idea that, okay, well, here's this guy up here giving a lecture to a hundred people in complete control, um, and doing a really good job of it. And here he's telling me that when he was in my seat, you know, 20 years ago, um, you know, the thought of being called on would make him, you know, go out of the room and vomit. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I think from there, right, it's creating the environment where you can get them on their feet and they are allowed to fail and they are allowed to struggle. Um, you know, the one thing I will get mad about and the one thing I will kind of go off about now is other students who ridicule or mock students who are trying. Yes. That, that's what will get me mad. Um, and, and in fact, that, that will... Um, you know, like here, you know, not surprisingly, the way we teach trial ed isn't that different from Campbell, where we have the weekly lecture, then the 
instead of performance sections, we call them workshops. I don't generally teach the workshops, but you know, I filled in a couple of times. And, you know, if I see somebody like snickering at somebody who's struggling, that's the student I would send out or take points away from. So it is creating that environment where it's okay for them to fail. And then it is, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of positive feedback. Um, generally speaking, somebody's going to do something well. Um, and, and somebody's going to do something poorly. <laughs> Um, and, and so what I try to do is I try to say, this is what you did really well, and this is what you did poorly, and, and this is what you need to work on. And that's how I direct our workshop professors and our coaches to give feedback to this is what you did well, this is what you didn't do well, and this is what you need to work on. Um, and, and that works. And, and it, it, it's just giving them the opportunity, right? It's giving them the opportunity. And it's making yourself available, um, you know, sometimes as a professor, or as a supervisory lawyer, I think you have to put on the counseling hat and the supportive hat and just make yourself available and say, yeah. you know, um, yeah, this, you know, and to be honest with them, right? Yeah, this wasn't really good when you did this thing, but when you did this other thing, it was really good. Cool. Um, and, and I hate it, but like icebreakers, you know, like I, I do the same thing that y'all yeah. did in trial. I the first workshop is storytelling, right? They got to tell. Mm-hmm. I have to get the utility shot off because you create that exercise, right? But but they got to come in and they got to you know tell a story of somebody else, and that helps start to create that environment. Well, you've been talking a lot about. Um, I mean, you're a trial attorney, you're, you're a courtroom attorney, you're now a lecturing professor. A lot of focus on oral advocacy, but you've talked a lot about you know people who aren't comfortable getting up and arguing in front of a courtroom. Uh, look, I I always thought I was gonna be a prosecutor. I was for a little bit of time. I always imagined myself as an oral advocate in a courtroom. I'm now doing a different kind of law where my primary mode of advocacy is written advocacy. What kind of focus do you put on the written advocacy in in the program and and that as a JAG officer, how much written advocacy was done there? Well, JAGs did very, very little. Um, In in fact, it was one of the, you know, if I have to critique at least my time in the JAG Corps, I I don't think they developed us as, as writers enough. I say that, but I was never an appellate counsel. So the the military okay. services do have appellate government and appellate defense. Um, actually, my reserve capacity, I'm switching over to the appellate defense office um, in a couple months. So maybe I'll have more to say. Doing <laughs> that. Uh, but, but when I was a young lawyer, right, um, we didn't really do robust motion practice. Um, and generally, I think for a trial lawyer, right, a lot of, and especially with you all doing civil litigation, I'm assuming you guys do a lot of motions for sovereign judgment. Yeah. In response to summary judgment, right, which is advocacy, right? That's advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to be communicated in that way, right? I don't know if in the law school setting how well we do a good job of communicating that that too is advocacy. Um, and it, it's something that I try to emphasize. So here at um, the University of Illinois, and I, I, don't, I don't have any say over the 1L curriculum or our 1L legal writing program, but in, for our 1Ls, their second semester of legal writing is actually called Introduction to Advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So what they do throughout the course of the semester is they work on an appellate brief, and then at the end of the semester, they do oral argument on that one. But literally, the title of the course is Introduction to Advocacy, right, which starts creating that culture. Um, I think something that you that I try to do once we get to the upper level advocacy courses is even in trial advocacy courses, I, I require them to write. Um, and I know last year I got a lot of grumbles about it from our students because it was a culture shock for them. Um, so in in our we 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 do a lot of advanced trial advocacy here. So we do advanced as a course right after you take introductory trial ad, you can take advanced criminal trial ad or advanced civil trial ad. 
Um, I teach the advanced criminal trial ad, and then we have adjuncts teach the advanced civil, but I oversee the curriculum for both of them and the syllabus for both of them. And a requirement is that for each of them, they have to write a motion and, yeah. and argue the motion. Um, and and that, that to me emphasizes, and I think we do a whole class on, on written advocacy. Um, so it is developing those skills right away. And, you know, what I've found is, you know, a good motion is, you know, if, if you could win on a motion and not even get to trial, that's that's more successful. One thing that um, I get to do here that's exciting is is our moot court falls under me as well. Um, so what we try to do is, right, we try to fully integrate the moot court experience as well into trial team. And I try to encourage cross-feeding between moot court and trial team. Um, again, I think what you're really doing in moot court is trying to develop those skills as written advocates. Um, also, too, when I choose trial competitions, I try to look for trial competitions that have a writing requirement. Um, so, for example, um, we just, I was working on it this morning, sending a team to um, a Stetson pretrial um, advocacy competition where they have to write a memorandum of law. And then basically the whole competition is that they have to argue and call witnesses in support of that memorandum of law. So it is keeping that focus that writing, writing is advocacy. Oh yeah. Um, and that's why it's one of the things I kind of fight about behind the scenes, both at Campbell and at here um, is, you know, the, 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 the title shouldn't be director of trial advocacy. It should be the director of advocacy um, because advocacy has a lot of different components and, um, it's one of those things where, you know, when, when as the director of the Anderson Center for Advocacy and Professionalism, I'm able to kind of construe that broadly um, and incorporate more writing uh, because I'm able to fall back on and say, well, that's advocacy, right? So some of it's just communication. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's shift a little bit into some, you know, current events here. Uh, it, big news this week is was the Hunter Biden plea deal. And uh, I would be interested Kevin, I'd be interested in to know, you know, you explain here um, sort of the sticking points of the plea. Tom, you can jump in here. Well, look, I asked this question off the air because (laughs) I generally thought I saw an article that said this, but I thought it was something as simple as it like required him to get a full time job or like something really simple like that. And maybe I was just reading too fast. Or maybe I was surfing on Instagram. I thought it was CNN that reported this. That it was like he's got to get a full time job or something like that. That would be new for him. <laughs> I, I, I will say I was thinking I, I'm not. I have not been following the Hunter Biden Biden story that that closely, but I'll find on it nonetheless. But one of the things I will say, usually when people start off with as a former prosecutor, as a former federal prosecutor, um, you know that something cringe is going to follow. Yeah. <laughs> going to follow that. Um, but as a former federal prosecutor, um, my understanding was, and I don't know if it's that he had to get a job, but that basically- I, I don't remember seeing that anywhere. I'm like, I, pretty I, I sure I'm looking that. it up I now. Think, I, I do think it was, you know, for that type of plea with that type of punishment, I think there was a number of options that like a supervisory court could impose upon him. Okay. Um, and it was, and again, I could be, I am not an expert on this at all. Um, it was my understanding is that he did not want those restrictions. Um, so to me, I, you know, the, the whole, the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, just tell us this, what's the judge's role when, when you go before the judge and you have a plea deal, what's the judge's role there? I mean, look, the judge plays an incredibly important role in, in, Please, right? And, and there's a lot of legal scholarship now um, looking at plea bargaining. In fact, uh, um, there's a professor at UNC 
um, Hesek, who, who just wrote a book on, on plea bargaining. Um, and, and it's really good. Um, so I recommend Hesek's book on plea bargaining. It, it's one of those things where, right, is, is that trials are, and, and this is a criticism of teaching trial advocacy in, in the law school, because um, there's actually a lot of debates within the academy whether what we're doing even matters and, and what status it should have in law school. And one of the arguments against teaching trial advocacy or, or focusing on trial advocacy or spending $5 million on it is that cases don't go to trial anymore. Right. Um, you know, and I think there's an EBA study out there that like 98% of cases don't go to trial because um, most of them either, you know, in the civil proceeding, it's civil, you know, they, they get dismissed by summary judgment or if they do go to trial, there's a settlement. I um, mean, obviously in the criminal setting, the overwhelming majority of cases was on guilty pleas. So, you know, guilty pleas are incredibly important. Settlements are incredibly important and it, it's something we don't talk a lot about. So whether you're talking about settlement or guilty plea, right, a lot of times it's the role of the trial court judge to accept the plea. Um, and, and I think what you see happening on a day-to-day basis, right, if you guys went into the, um, I, I forget what county Wilmington is in, right, if you go down to the county courthouse and watch a criminal docket, and Tom, you could probably speak to this from your time as a prosecutor, you're just watching guilty pleas all day and that judge isn't really doing too much what you see more at the federal court level is that the role of the judge is to make sure that the guilty plea is provident right is that the the defendant or the accused knows exactly what he or she is pleading guilty to that there's a reason why they're pleading guilty to and that there's a meeting of the minds on the terms and not only is there a meeting of the minds on the terms that the, that the terms are appropriate based on what the person's pleading guilty for and, and the appropriateness could either be by what's required by law or just something crazy, right? So I think what you saw happening in this case, and again, without me being an expert on it, was I think it was it was on its face a little bit of a weird plea, mm-hmm. right? With with her terms, and and I think it was going before the judge, and I think there's a real fear on the Biden part that the judge had some options here, and that maybe Biden wasn't going to get the exact deal that he wanted as a result of the guilty plea, and therefore he pulled out of it. Um, so, you know, I, I tend to, you know, like I said, I, I think the whole thing is silly. Um, so when I look at, I look at more at the macro level, right. And, and would, you know, a 19 year old who got picked up, you know, um, shuffling guns between Northwest Indiana and Chicago have the same rights and the same yes. options. Here. He's probably going to be no, right. Yeah. It's gonna be no. That's so absolutely what right. What you have here is it's somebody coming from a huge place of, of wealth and privilege, I think ultimately wanting the exact terms, right, with very low consequences mm-hmm. um, and, and really minimizing the collateral consequences. Um, and I think he was afraid that he wasn't going to get from the judge and so he bailed out from it. So I think on this one, I don't think it was a bad faith action on part of the government, but I think it was fear of fear of the judge because, right, on the surface, right, it seemed like a kind of a sweetheart deal. Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. Well, well I've... I'm in a point now where I've got two different questions that go in totally different directions based <laughs> on some stuff that uh, Tony just said. Uh, I guess I'll start with one that kind of reflects on on two things you've talked about. One, just now, the role of the judge, the power of the federal government in forcing these plea deals or, or, or offering these plea deals. I shouldn't say forcing. Earlier, you talked about being you know, a military JAG and you, having a captive audience. And I think that really goes to where I want to talk about. As you know, I interned with the Air Force JAG in no small part thanks to you. But one of the things I noticed there in military trials is you have a commissioned officer 
conducting an examination or cross-examination, a, a trial presided over by a commissioned officer. And a lot of times you have, you know, NCOs and enlisted individuals either on trial or testifying, and you see some default to deference to rank. How does that come into play in making sure that, you know, the accused rights are preserved, but also dealing with the military culture of, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, to a superior officer? Well, I just want to chime in really quick, Professor Guiato, because I always get picked on for having the longest question. <laughs> and that by far was a record-breaking long question that I hope we will clip and save. Because I'm not sure that, I'm not sure it could have gotten That might have been longer. a minute and a half. Yeah, I, a minute. <laughs> I was listening to that question like Tom Dillmer. No, that's a really good question, Tom. And mm-hmm. it's one that I thought a lot about. Um, and, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of literature right now on, on the fairness of the military justice system um, because it's actually going through a, a kind of a huge sea change right now. Um, yeah, rank, rank is problematic. I mean, I even remember, you know, I would, especially at the end of my time, I would try a case every now and then. And your experience is on display, right? Um, you know, I, I walked, I think the... I, I think I tried a case as a lieutenant colonel. So, you know, I walk into the courtroom and you're wearing your service dress and I'm wearing lieutenant colonel rank. Um, I deployed, um, which not a lot of Jags have deployed. So, um, you know, in the Air Force, when you deploy, you get a lot of ribbons. So I had a lot of ribbons. Um, you know, I worked in the Pentagon, so I had a special Pentagon badge that goes on your uniform. Um, and I'm going against a, a brand new captain who had been in the Jaguar mm. for maybe eight months, um, has like two ribbons. And, you know, you get up there in closing argument and you don't want to say I have more credibility than the other person. But you lean into that. Right. You mm-hmm. make comments about I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and, and you do worry tips and scales and, and you do worry, um, especially with a military judge being higher ranked too. So when you have a defendant or an accused who's an enlisted member, um, which are overwhelmingly the number of people who are court-martialed are enlisted, you do have that balance. So one way to mitigate it is that they can ask for enlisted jury members. Um, Even when you ask for enlisted jury members, it's still like one-third of the members will be enlisted. The rest will be officers. And the enlisted members have to outrank you which is problematic, right? Because what you would do as a government, if you had like a young airman, right? He's a 20 year old airman first class. And let's say the allegation is he goes out and does a bunch of cocaine and drives into a building, right? Um, What you want to do is you want to get like the most senior enlisted people you can. You want chief master sergeants, right? (laughs) People who have been in for 30 years and are at literally the top of their profession who have done it for 30 years and never had a youthful mistake, right? So it, it is incredibly, it, it's incredibly imbalanced. Now, um, I wrote a law review article on this back in the day. Um, there are other things in the military justice system that are designed to, to mitigate that, right? And that's like open discovery, free defense counsel, um, kind of robust appellate review, um, the liberal grant mandate on jury selection, right? Where basically if the defense has any, can articulate any reason to strike a member, they can. There are these other mechanisms to put them in place, but it's a real problem. It's, it's a real, real problem. And you, you don't have unanimous juries either. So you can be convicted on two thirds of a jury vote, um, which is very tenuous constitutionally. So yeah, the, the, the military justice system in, in a lot of ways is very fair. Um, sometimes from a government point of view, maybe too fair. Um, but if you tell a young enlisted member who is in a room with all higher ranking officers 
um, with a jury of higher ranking officers, um, that's fair. It may be more difficult. And in fact, there's a study a couple years ago. I don't have the exact numbers. I don't want to mistake them. But it's also to uh, members of color are disproportionately prosecuted in the military than, than white members. Mm. Right. So generally speaking, you may have a defendant who is a person of color is the only person of color in the room. And not to mention that the lowest ranking in the room as well. Mm. Well, I, I got in a, I got in a debate with Tom today because I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court cases coming up, um, revisiting Chevron deference. And well, maybe it was Kevin. I take that back. Yeah, Kevin was like, "What's the big deal about Chevron deference?" And I wish I had realized what a big deal about it was when I was in law school because I was going to be practicing healthcare law because there's so many things that are, that are handled in administrative law. So, Professor Giotto, what's your feelings? Do you think the court is going to to pull back just a little bit on that deference? Yeah, um, well, I think administrative law should be a required law school course. Agreed. Um, it, yeah. It's something I, I used to harp on quite a bit during my time at Campbell was that we had to offer administrative law all the time. Um, and that students end up practicing administrative law, and, and nobody listened to me on that one. <laughs> um, so I... Tom, you took, I, I yep. you took administrative law with yeah, me. Yeah, it was great. You? Yeah, and it's, it's uh, come so, in a, very handy in the uh, Office of Administrative Hearings cases I've been doing. So. Yeah. yeah. So Chevron deference is huge, right? And, you know, not to be, like, overly dramatic, I, I think yeah, I think the Biden stuff is a little bit silly, but, but I will engage in the silliness of, like, is our framework of government in question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Chevron deference speaks to that very directly, right? So... You know, just a quick primer on Chevron deference, right? Chevron deference is this idea that um, if there's ambiguity um, in the, what a word means, the administrative agency is generally given deference on deciding what that word means. Um, and in that Chevron is a Supreme Court case, I think, from the 1970s. It's a Justice, um, it's a Justice Stevens decision. Um, and it's been the law of the land for a really long time. And it's this idea that, you know, administrative agencies, right, who get, they get a grant of authority from, from Congress through their enabling statute and through the APA. And because they're experts and they're the ones doing this, they get to resolve any ambiguity. And basically Chevron deference, it's the court saying, we're going to step out of it, right? We're, we're going to defer to you on this one, um, whatever you guys think is right. What you saw happen post that, um, and especially, and it, it's a weird history on Chevron deference as to who opposes and who doesn't oppose it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you saw initially, uh, uh, you know, a lot of folks from the left oppose Chevron deference because during the Reagan administration, um, you know, administrative agencies were taking more conservative positions. Um, in fact, I, I think there's a Scalia decision out there. I don't know, remember the case off the top of my head where he finally says, yeah, Chevron deference is great. Um, <laughs> you know, you defer to the, to the agencies. Um, then what you saw, right, is, is as, you know, Democratic administrations came in, right, the Clinton and the Obama administration, um, there's a perception that administrative agencies leaned a little bit to the left. Um, and so many folks on the conservative um, movement said, no, we basically, we, we need to really go after administrative agencies because this idea that, I mean, administrative agencies are are almost in and of themselves unconstitutional, right? That that with an administrative agency, they are the executive branch, they right. are the legislative branch, and they are the judicial branch all in one. Um, and, and that's a violation of the separation of powers. And so what a lot of folks on the right and the conservative legal movement started saying was, well, Chevron's the problem, right? Because what Chevron does is is it keeps courts from being able to to really get into what administrative agencies are doing, which makes them really positive, which makes them really powerful. 
Um, and so, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch has been a long time outspoken critic of Chevron. Justice Kavanaugh has been an outspoken critic of Chevron. Um, the Federalist Society has really targeted Chevron. Um, and, and so you haven't seen Chevron overturned, but what you've seen is the rise of the major questions doctrine. And, and that came out of um, some Obamacare decisions with the Roberts Court where Roberts started talking about, well, you know, we're not going to get rid of Chevron deference, but if, if, the, if the ambiguity relates to this major question on the future of our country, we're not going to give Chevron deference to the ambiguity. Um, and, and that was criticized a lot at the time as saying, well, what, what, what's the major question? And it's the Supreme Court basically picking and choosing what the major question is. Um, but it kind of lay dormant for a year. And then in this last term, you saw the application of the major question doctrine. Now, the administrative law professors and nerds are like geeking out over, I think, um, Amy Comey Barrett had a decision that did like a textualist reading of the major questions doctrine. I think Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are a little bit more broadly construing it. But whatever approach you get to the major questions doctrine, it's really becoming a tool to get around Chevron. Mm -hmm. Where they could just be like, well, it's a major question. We don't need to consider, we don't need to get deference. And then we can go weigh in and, and kind of impose our judicial opinion on um, the agency. So, you know, to a lot of folks, right, you know, if you get rid of Chevron, if you get rid, and if you liberally construe the major question doctrine, it really gives the judiciary a role in, in striking down what administrative agencies are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and as administrative agencies are really becoming the primary tool for the executive branch to act, um, and I think you saw this a lot with both President Obama and President Biden, right? When you have an opposition Congress that keeps you from getting landmark legislation through, what do you do as the president? You turn to an executive order and administrative action. Um, and, and I think that's how the um, student loan forgiveness came through, right? Is that Biden cannot get it through Congress. So he does it through the Department of Education, hoping for Chevron deference. Then the court's able to come in and be like, nope. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that's to, to some folks who really like the separation of powers, that's how it's supposed to work. To some folks who feel that the president should be able to act through administrative agencies, it's a bad thing. But For those of us who believe in the unitary executive, you know, we, we think maybe we should get some deference. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, or do we believe in the unitary executive when it's an executive that we like? Um, <laughs> you know, so it, it's, 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 um, it's difficult. It's difficult. And um, academics are in strong disagreement on it. I think practitioners are. And, and I think if it was what I think is going to happen with this iteration of the court, um, I I think you'll probably see Chevron overruled. Um, if not overruled, I think you're going to see the major question doctrine just completely eat it up. Um, there is a, a blog post by Josh Blackman, who's a very conservative professor in South Texas, and he wrote like a scathing critique of um, Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett for not being conservative enough hmm. uh, and, and, and saying that they, they lack the will. And, and one of the things that he talked about was that they need to basically expressly overrule Chevron. And so I think the idea is that, you know, a conservative court needs another vote to do that. Interesting. I know in healthcare, it's, it's been really tough dealing with administrative agencies. Healthcare is so incredibly regulated. Um, so even when you feel like, I know of representative healthcare providers, a survey you say of your facility was unfair just to get it, you know, 
through the administrative courts and feel like you get a fair shake in the action has been difficult to almost to the point when you take it to the federal ALJ, they say, you know, we have to tell our clients, look, it's, it's probably not going to go in your favor until we can get to that next level outside of the agency. Um, so right. I personally would like to see them um, Never tell my client roll that, that. back. <laughs> you never tell your client always that, ready to win. No, it's, <laughs> it's like, what are you using it for? Right. That, and that, that's why, you know, people of different groups have been opposed to Chevron at different times. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's a crazy law professor at, at Harvard, Adrian Vermeule, who, who believe who is by trade an administrative law scholar um, and very well respected, literally a Harvard law professor and an expert in it. Um, and probably about like five to 10 years ago, he had a conversion to Catholicism and, and became what's called an integralist that believes that, you know, basically the state should be integrated with faith, particularly the Catholic faith. Um, and, and he wrote a book that basically was like the way you make that happen, right, is through the administrative state. Mm-hmm. And, and you need Chevron to do it. Um, the way you impose values, norms and culture is through the administrative realm, right? And then, so I think people on the left will look and they'd be like, well, I don't want to live in a Catholic <laughs> state. Um, but at the same time, they want their student loans forgiven, right? Um, you know, and, and obviously President Trump did this heavily when it came to immigration. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he relied really heavily on executive acts carried out through agencies. So it's, you know, I, I think for, for those of you who are like, you know, in the mud, you know, doing real legal work every day, um, I think it matters a lot, but then I think it also does speak to these long, very, very huge issues of, of how our country is governed and, and the idea of the unitary executive. Yeah, absolutely. Final questions, Tom, before we do our fun activity or Kevin? Well, I'll say this, and we 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 didn't really touch it, but I was always fascinated, Professor Giotto, and maybe I just was young and new to law school with your uh, interest in criminal procedure and the way that yeah. you viewed um, a lot of the case law and, and the way you had a real practical approach to the legal issues that were at play in those cases. And I was just wondering, what do you think um, sort of sparked your interest in criminal procedure jurisprudence to the point that you wanted to educate the next generation? I will say criminal procedure is by far the best class to teach. I, I <laughs> love it. Um, it's to be fair, what I miss, the, I don't teach it here. It's, it's what I miss most about Campbell and my time at Campbell is teaching crim pro. Um, so for me, I, I, I have a soft spot for crim pro because I think it changed my life when I took it in law school. Um, so I, I went to law school with no interest in criminal law whatsoever. Um, my criminal law course was very philosophical and, and I love the professor who taught it. So I don't want to criticize it. Um, but it was very, very philosophical and theoretical. So I, it just kind of came and went for me. Um, and when I was a 2L crim pro was an elective, I took it just because I thought it was on the bar exam. And I fell in love with it. <laughs> I, I just, there's some areas of law that just make sense to me. Um, so crim pro is why I went into criminal law practice. Um, but I think what I felt at the time, um, and I think I was proved right by it, is it's, the, and I think we feel it now as a country, maybe more than we have in the last 20 or 30 years, is the Supreme Court is nine people who are there for different reasons, making decisions that fundamentally impact all of our lives every day. Mm-hmm. And for me, for a long time, the way that was felt was in criminal procedure, right? Um, 
What happens to you at a traffic stop is based on what the Supreme Court said in criminal procedure. So there's this applicable thing in it. And then when I got into practice, um, especially as, as a young prosecutor, you dealt with it every day. Um, you know, I, I would get the phone call at three o'clock in the morning from our law enforcement. It's like, hey, do we have probable cause to take blood? Um, do we have probable cause to make an arrest? Do we have probable cause to do this? Um, or do I have to do rights advisement here? Um, it was just this area of law that that you had a real impact. And, and I think law school needs to reflect that. Um, I, I like legal theory. I like to read. I like research. I like to write. Um, and I think there's a real place for that in the legal academy, but but we cannot neglect the mission that we are preparing lawyers to go practice. Mm-hmm. Um, criminal procedure is just it's it's so there's so many that. gray areas in criminal procedure. And yeah. I think that that is just what when you actually get out there dealing with things, it, it was fascinating. to I me. knew we were getting deep when you brought up the picture of the star chamber. One day when we were in ourselves, I said, we're deep, we're deep right now. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I would go down those words too, but I also think for me, like, as the older I got, right, and, and the more mature I became, you know, I, I don't want to say I had crisis of faith as a prosecutor, um, but there were times where I'm just like, yeah, what are we doing? Like, you know, and, and I think when you kind of get to a point too, where you're like, oh, wait a minute here, if this was me, I wouldn't be in this courtroom. Um, so I think once you understand the issues of race, uh, yeah. gender identity, of, of sexuality, how, and, and the consequences is so huge, right? Because with mm-hmm. criminal procedure, you end up in prison. Maybe not in prison, right? But, you know, you could be brought into the jailhouse for like three days before you're released, and then you've lost your job. Um, right. That to me is, is, is really, once you are like, wait a minute, not only is this interesting, not only is this kind of personality driven, but like, it's really kind of screwed up. Um, it's really, really kind of screwed up that you have a system of rules that really disenfranchise a lot of people. And then it creates, and I don't know how much I thought I was doing when you guys were taking from pro, but by the end, you know, it's this idea that the, the, the system of the fourth amendment, right. Mm-hmm. Incentivizes adverse police actions with a lot of different folks. And when you layer that on top, it's going to break. The system's mm-hmm. going to break. And then you get police violence, right? right? And then you get everything that comes with it. And so everybody's operating under the rules of the game, though, that the Supreme Court gives them. So I don't know. I love Crim Pro. I miss teaching it all the time. Um, I talked to my former Crim Pro colleagues at, at Campbell who are also not teaching Crim Pro anymore. And we, we are all on Crim Pro withdrawal. <laughs> well, I tell you. There's no secret why we want Professor of the Year. It's because of the subject matter. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I tell you what. If you've ever been to a sentencing, I had an opportunity when I was interning for uh, the Medicaid Fraud Investigation Division to go see, see a federal sentencing. And this um, man was being sentenced to 20 years in prison. And mm. it's such a heavy atmosphere in the courtroom. You're, you're talking about a man, maybe he deserves it, but he's going to go away for 20 years, away from his family. And he's sitting there just asking the judge to let him have an opportunity to go see his daughter get married. Mm. And it's, it, it, it was really heavy. Yeah. It's real life. And, 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 you know, going back, I think the first question, like how I approach trial advocacy is it's, it's sinking that to the real life. Like we do trial team, we do the course for real life, right? Like winning is great. I want to win all the time. We won a competition in the fall. It was good for me career wise. Like everything is great. But like at the end of the day, we do it for real life. Um, Because, I mean, you know, I I don't think they do it anymore, but back in the day, 
like when we sentenced some, when like somebody was sentenced, like security forces would come and put them in chains, like yeah, around yeah. their ankles and around their back, and they would walk them out of that courtroom. And my first case, you know, the guy got like 20 years and like, you're so amped up for that. Right. And like, it's like, this is great. But then you're sitting there and you see some a human being carried out right. in chains, mm. their family members sobbing uncontrollably. And you're like, this, this stuff's real. Yeah. This stuff's it was real. heavy for sure. Okay. Well, a not heavy topic. It is right, very heavy right here. We've got Barbie and Oppenheimer is a heavy Barb- topic. Have a, have you Oppenheimer? It's, it's quite heavy. So <laughs> I had to Barbie out for the day. So I'm going to give some facts and you have to tell me if it's Barbie or Oppenheimer. This is, oh, is this about Barbie, like not Oppenheimer? So. <laughs> yeah. Are these like facts on the box office reviews or facts on the actual movies? Uh, all of it. Okay. Just, yeah. Kevin has to overthink it. Let uh, me talk about the rules. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we go. The film was shot in 57 days. Barbie. Oppenheimer. No what chance. What say you, Tom Harvey? I'm going with Barbie. Oppenheimer. Oh, my God. A three-hour film. That's what they were, it made a big deal. That seems pretty short days. for a three-hour film. Is that, is that long for, for filming? No, it's short. It's very short. Mm. Yeah. Okay. The runtime is 113 minutes and 54 seconds. Barbara, you just told us. You said it's three hours. You yeah. just said that. Oh, well, I screwed that one up. How smart am <laughs> I? <laughs> Shut up, Kevin. <laughs> okay. The main character's birthday is March 9th, 1959. Oh, Oppenheimer. Barbie. That's Barbie. Barbie. Barbie, Margaret Roby? She is not that old. No, the character Barbie. of Barbie. Barbie that's just out in the movie theater? Barbie was born. The toy. The toy. The the toy. You got to be way more specific than you got to say the toy was found or something was found. You don't say that main character. This game is like Margaret Margaret Roby from Wolf on Wall Street is, well, either way. See, you were just obsessed with her. I'm not. just going to focus on her. These questions are so vague. We need Chevron (laughs) (laughs) down. All right. Some scenes appear in black and white and some scenes are in color. Oppenheimer. Okay, so somebody needs to tell me the significance, bonus points of that. Oh, your guy. Color is is Oppenheimer's perspective. Uh, Not exactly. So the film is both objective and subjective like the law, right? The color scenes are subjective and the black and white scenes are objective. I thought that was really cool. The color scenes are subjective and the black and white scenes are objective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I see where they're going there with the artistic expression. I, I don't know. If yeah. It's black and white. I thought it was really it's neat. All, it's, it's art. It's all subjective. Because we mm-hmm. deal with subjective and objective every day. And in law school, I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> that was one of the hardest things for me nobody, to figure out. Nobody understood in law school. <laughs> <laughs> so having graded exams for that long, nobody ever understood how to do objective and subjective. <laughs> I know. I think it was 3L when I finally got it. Hard I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't all know right. if I got it yet. All right, you probably have it. I'm just sitting there just <laughs> speaking subjectively, Judge. <laughs> All right, grossed over $116 million during its first weekend. Barbie. 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 Always make a kid's movie. It will win every time because us adults need somewhere to take I our I thought it was like R or PG-13 or R. It is. Barbie's a kid's movie. It's not movie. R. Yeah, I say I heard it was not a kid's movie. Well, I mean, it's not G, but I don't think it's R. It's PG-13. It's PG-13 at least. Okay, well. Okay. I'm not then, taking my Barbie. kids to see it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> my kids <laughs> <didn't want> to. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Professor Guiato, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Zealous Advocate podcast. Um, everyone, can we enjoy your viewership. Continue to follow us on Spotify and wherever you find your podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Zealous Advocate podcast. Make sure to subscribe to follow us wherever you get your podcasts.